Hello, welcome to episode 179 of Riot Act, a podcast about music with me, Stephen Hill, and as ever, it's Renfrey Deadman. Hello, Renfrey. Hello. Uh, I'm very well, Steve. How are you doing? I'm all right, thanks, mate. What's going on? Got any gossip? Got any good gossip? Uh, None that I'm allowed to talk about, I don't think. No, sorry. Renfrey uh, is currently plotting some kind of massive terrorist attack, so obviously we're going to leave that (laughs) as a surprise for when it happens, Um, as opposed to... Sure, yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if I really want that on record. And that is exactly what's uh, what we're doing here. This is literally on record. Um, mm. But if you like, yeah. I really do hope. So, sometimes I do wonder if new listeners come into the podcast and don't understand the sense of humour. Like, if this is the first episode that someone's listened to, I wonder, mm-hmm. oh dear, I wonder if they are taking that seriously. I don't want them to listen if they are, because I think you'd have to be pretty fucking stupid to think that somebody who was legitimately planning a huge terrorist attack of some description <laughs> also like found time... To, to talk about the new Yard Act album as well. <laughs> you never know. You never know. But yeah, that, and, and then And then record a podcast about it. I mean, I would imagine that that is fairly obvious that mm. you're not planning to do that. Unless no. I'm doing a double, what's it called, swerve. Unless it's like hiding in plain sight. Mm. And I'm just, we're just, this is the front for our dirty. Di- there are certain people who do podcasts who actually are relatively considered dangerous as we will get yes. into later That's on true. in this show um but anyway enough about life in the stocks uh <laughs> on this week's show we're going to be playing playing sorry this is a serious but now we're going to be paying tribute to meatloaf who died last week at the age of 74 we'll go into meatloaf later on we're going to be concentrating this podcast on the classic album Bat out of hell and we'll talk about that more in a little bit before we do we would like to suggest that you our lovely listener go over to patreon.com forward slash right act podcast where you can sign up for some beautiful exclusive content we should say a big thank you to everyone who's been so delighted at our recent rioters mm. review on my chemical romances three cheers for sweet revenge yeah um I saw quite a big uptake in the old socials and that, and we've actually big quite a big uptake in people actually signing up. Yeah, it was uh, lovely. Thank possibly you. to listen to that and our load special, which I'll talk about in a second as well. Yeah, yeah, it was lovely. Thank you very much um, to everyone who's uh, checked that out or signed up or commented or listened or anything at all. Um, uh, a lot of people, a lot of love for that record, obviously. Um, mm-hmm. Which makes total sense. I think there were a few surprises. Uh, when both of us went back to that album uh i feel like uh, i could kind of going back and editing it i feel like i was um really rougher on it than i intended to be but i think it was more as a counter to you that's all i will say uh but but yeah i love it by the way if anyone yeah. listened to that mcr special and got the impression that like i don't like the record at all i would like to point out that i actually think it's a great record i think i was just so stunned by your reaction to it that i was pr- mm. trying to provide some counters uh but yeah i mean you know it's a it's a classic isn't it even yeah. though we didn't do it, classic what? albums no 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 we didn't but then do you kind of regret now that like, now oh, could... yeah a little bit i kind of do yeah i kind of do because i think it might have been worth maybe we'll do 
no we can't can we i was gonna say maybe we do like a kind of classic album redux in it in a few years and go into it like track by track and I mean, maybe i don't know if we waited, I mean, a part of me if is we like, waited five years i don't see why not there, there are there are things that we have done on writers review in the past which i would really like to cover on classic albums at some mm. point I, one that springs to mind i'm certain we did a, a writer's 100 gex <laughs> <laughs> well that would be a hell of a turnaround wouldn't it i'm sure we did a writer's review on biffy clyro vertigo bliss for example which i would love to do as a uh, classic album one day yeah i mean there, there, there's a few i mean we yeah I, I feel the same about the self-titled killing joke album there we go yeah. we have a we have a writer's review on the self-titled killing joke album. this is basically if you sign up if you're not familiar if you sign up for any amount of money over a, a dollar then you can suggest a record to us and we will talk about it unless we feel it is a classic album and then we will just shuffle it into um a slightly higher position in the pile of classic albums and i'll talk about that in a second but there are loads and loads of writers reviews up at the moment uh kings of leon hundred reasons velvet revolver killing jokers mentioned biffy clyro has mentioned death block party placebo quicksand dream theater spiritualized funeral for a friend mary beats jane bauhaus stone roses miles davis churches thrice david bowie slint pop will eat itself genghis tron Craftwork, dinosaur jr death grips white stripes my vitriol we've got loads and Christ. loads of different artists that we have covered God, over there on lot. that particular bit yes yeah. we've got almost 90 now nearly 90 different artists that we've covered yes and we also as i mentioned we do also have the classic album podcast oh we should say as well the next writers review will be going up this weekend on altered state by tesseract so they've had a couple of big it's been Faith and More, Radiance Machine and My Chemical Romance have been the last three Rioters reviews. Mm. Tesseract, probably not quite as big as those bands. So, you know, but we have to cover as much stuff as we can. But yeah, Altered State by Tesseract will be the next one. If you want to pay for our $5 a month tier, that will get you access to two classic albums a month. We spoke last week about the lovely reaction to Load by Metallica. And next week, you'll be getting, at the very least... The first part of a two-part Every Time I Die classic album to celebrate the career of one of Hardcore's greatest ever artists. And certainly, for my money, one of the most influential, unique, heavy bands of the 21st century. I've picked The Big Dirty. I'm going to reveal that now. Mm -hmm. And The Big Dirty will be the first of two Every Time I Die albums that we will be giving to you in the next couple of weeks. So the first part of Every Time I Die will be going up some point next week. And maybe even the second part. We might try and do them together. We'll probably try and do them together. I mean, it might even go up in the next few days. Who knows? Um, mm. But yes, uh, I've chosen... I'm going to reveal... I've chosen okay. as well. I've re chosen New Junk Aesthetic, which I know will please some of you because uh, some of you were uh, commenting and saying that's a really underrated record. So that's mm -hmm. good to know. And those of you who did comment that, were correct <laughs> by the way so it's five pound for all of your classic albums after that as we review revealed before we're doing origin of symmetry by muse which Hello. will be interesting i'm sure yep. and then <laughs> i've picked what the next one's going to be and it is going to be nothing like either of those <laughs> things but it's still going to be really really good anyway we haven't spoken about this band before but there's a very good chance that their album the overload is going to be number one or number two in the UK albums chart this week, mm. I'm speaking about Yard Act, mm. Renfrey. Their album came out last week. As I said, the album's called The Overload. And quite a few of you got in contact with us to mm -hmm. to talk about it and say, oh, I'd be really interested to know your views on it. So thank you for that. Yeah. 
they are essentially a kind of one of those post-punky, no-wavy indie punk bands from Leeds. I think it's definitely fair to put them in that post-punk revival bracket that we are currently experiencing. I mean, that is Mm -hmm. pretty... Yeah, that's that's where they sit, I would say. We've covered a lot of different variants of that thing, I think, from Black Country New Road or Black Midi being quite a difficult sounding, odd, angular, expansive, experimental version of that to the sort of 80s electro thump inspired band album of like not bands because i know i like trains do a lot of different stuff but compromat by i like trains very much that kind of propulsive very 80s stark sounding craft working vibe that it had to it to idols and the more typically post-punk the fall-esque stuff to the more romanticized smith-esque bits and bobs that a band like fontaine's dc would be that kind of more kind of poetic and romantic uh, and um, lush sounding version of it that Fontaine's DC do. He very nicely summed up the nuances of all those bands very succinctly. Well done, Steve. Very nice. Well, I, you know, as listeners will know, I'm a big fan of all of those bands. Yeah. Some more so than others. Mm. And I'm a big fan of this style, particularly mm. the first sort of wave of it back in the late 70s through to the early 80s. You know, people will know how I feel about those legendary classic bands. So I have to say, pretty excited when a new one of these bands comes along. And, you know, it feels like a, it feels like a zeitgeisty thing at the moment. But that's all right, because as long as it's good, it's good. And it's a style that I have a lot of time and a lot of love for. So I was pretty excited to listen to the overload particularly as it was getting um you know all the the right kind of noises made about it um and i have to say i listened to the first song the title track and i was like yes this is the sort of thing i like good that bass really pops it's got a very british sounding distinctive voice it's that stream of consciousness-esque um politicized a kitchen sink drama kind of thing that runs throughout it um but yet despite that Renfrew I'm gonna say the album overall is a little bit of a disappointment to me mm. it's a little bit of a disappointment to me now I'm gonna say that just because I don't want people to think that just because that I give all of these bands no matter how good they are in quality a sort of free ride or whatever mm. I don't think Yard Act show no potential whatsoever mm-hmm. don't think they're a rubbish band by any stretch of the imagination i don't think the overload is a bad record but i think it does lean on some of the things which um are more reminiscent of bands who i'm not as keen on who i guess are kind of sort of prior to or adjacent to the kind of thing that's been happening over the last few years slaves sleaford mods Sleaford mods come up in my head quite a lot. Weirdly, Art Bruter, a band who I mentioned in quite in passing quite a lot, as someone who I liked a fair bit, and there's a touch of Art Brute in it as well. But I think Art Brute were very kind of art school, and I felt like the joke was a little bit slighter than them, and it came across a little bit better than a dozen yard act. Uh, it's hard to put your finger on exactly what the problem is with this record i can i I can try (laughs) i mean yeah you 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 go ahead because i I think it's it's quite it's not an obvious thing i think 
the response, I think someone's response to this album is going to be very, very dependent on how much they enjoy the uh, style of poetry um, that is delivered by frontman James Smith. And it is very, um, it's very idiosyncratic. I think, you know, he, he has marked himself out as someone who is very, uh, it, it does have an identity as a result of him primarily. I don't think the band gives Yard Act an identity. I think he does. Uh, and that's mm-hmm. okay. That's fine. Um, but there's that sort of every man john cooper clark style poetry to this i don't think it's as good as john cooper clark personally but there's a there's a sense of humor in the album which will either be for you or not for you at all uh to quote pearl jam and um it is not to my tastes personally at all i i, I found it more often than not irritating and especially as the album progressed really very very irritating indeed um sometimes it felt like it was as inspired by vic reeves as it was post-punk and i fucking love vic reeves to yeah, be yeah, fair. yeah but uh, i think there's also an incredibly i think vic reeves is genius because he manages to balance on that line between sort of surrealness and stupidity so brilliantly and i think that's an incredibly difficult balancing act to pull off um and i i i just found it really and uh, i found it more often annoying than than funny if i'm totally honest i kind of wrote in my notes that this is idols by way of kaiser chiefs as fronted by phil daniels from park life um and a lot of the mm. a lot of the way that it was uh a lot of the way that james smith presents his words and stuff reminded me a lot of phil daniels uh from park life it's not exactly the same but it irritated me in exactly the same way (laughs) it's got that i mean the stuff like you know are talking about what's a song where they're talking about being in a band and oh you got to play covers and don't do you know fat rob from around the corner will get you a gig but you gotta make sure you do the standards and all this sort of Mm. thing and I was a bit like, um, you're painting this sort of old school working class Britain thing, which has been done by other artists much, much better. I mean, you mentioned Blur there. Obviously, people know how I feel about Park Life and Modern Life is Rubbish and The Great Escape as well. And I think there are things that I could, you know, I understand when people listen to Blur, particularly now particularly if they're Taylor Swift fans and they go, oh, this is a bit much, like, you know, like it's silly or whatever. Do you know what I mean? I can, I, yeah, uh, I get it. Do you know what I mean? I understand how that might kind of be a bit jarring to people, but I think they do a really good job at painting those pictures, not just with the lyrics, but with their music as well. And I feel like Yard Act could be a a another post-punk band, but just with somebody... Doing a Peter Kay a little bit. It's, it, yeah. it, you mentioned Vic Reeves. It's almost Peter Kay. Yeah, in a way, it is closer to Peter Kay than it is Vic Reeves, which is not a good thing. And I think we mentioned... Um, I mean, I went to see Idols last week, and I thought they were fantastic. And we've mentioned Idols. Idols, you know, the, the album that we responded to the least for Idols was Ultra Mono. Mm. And I think there was moments sort of in, you know, talking about, you know, model villages and stuff where Idols dipped 
towards the i don't think they quite reached it but i was like you are dangerously close to self-parody yes at points on that album mm. and i think th- this is quite a long a f- far further down the road from even where ultra mono was mm. we've spoken a lot of times about that kind of the what steve von till from neurosis called the discharge haiku that idols do idols do a do a lot with a little and yeah. i feel like yardak do little with quite a lot I feel like they do little with little, to be honest. I think that's another issue I have with it. (laughs) Whilst James Smith is very idiosyncratic as a frontman, when you take away James Smith, you take away so much. And what is going on underneath is so basic and so simplistic. Now, you mentioned on the phone the other day to me that doesn't matter if it's basic and simplistic it's it's you know a form of punk rock and you're not wrong but i found it almost moronically simplistic um it was just so so simple that i just didn't i I didn't i think if you took if you took away that element then you've got practically nothing at all like not very interesting at all it's very interesting that bands like idols get um these criticisms that you know the message that they're putting across is incredibly simplistic and their music is very simplistic i mean in comparison to yard act i i I think anyone who makes those criticisms towards idols needs to listen to yard act and get a bit of perspective maybe (laughs) because it feels a lot more simplistic on this than it is uh on the the way that idols do it it feels like there's a lot more depth behind when idols say something which on the surface might appear you know like i mean i mentioned love song to you on the phone where you know i I, I really love you. I fucking love you. Look at this card I bought you. It says I love you. Now you could go, well, what a stupid lyric yeah. about buying someone a Valentine's card. But actually, what it's saying is, if I do this, com- if I do this consumerist thing, it will be proof that I am in love with you. And I yeah. think that it's, there's, yeah, there's, it's saying just by buying a card, which is mm. what everyone does, I can show my love to you. And and Joe Talbot is simply saying that's not love that's yeah. commercialism whereas i don't f- I, there was nothing on yard act that jumped that, on the overload that jumped out to me ha- for having that kind of duality of meaning no. or depth below the the surface of what those words were referring to and i actually you know the first few tracks i found quite enjoyable but i, I mean i would compare i mean to take i mean comparisons to idols is something i think you're not going to compare it to fontaine's dc or black country new road but i think for me, the, the closest comparison we've had on the show to it of, of a newer band would be Squid. Now, we were both yeah. like, oh, you know, you weren't massively keen on that Squid album. I liked yeah. it. I thought it was quite good. I didn't think it was amazing. You know, it was never going to get in my top 20 of the, in 2021 or anything. But I thought it was quite good. And I thought it was interesting that Squid were deliberately going out of their way to create a much, just a kind of instantaneous, almost pop version of those types of bands and i thought when they got that right they 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 wrote some really great songs Mm. i would say this is some way off that squid album this is comfortably my least favorite of those post-punk type records that we have reviewed in the past few years um it 
probably would have been Squid prior to this. Oh, actually, to be honest with you, I think it probably would have been that Fontaine's DC album, actually, if I'm, oh. if I'm being totally honest. I know that you liked okay. that a lot more than yeah, I did. Yeah, I did like it a lot. Um, but, um, but I, I, you know, I much prefer Fontaine's DC to this. I, I just don't think there's an awful lot to it, really. And, and they're getting a lot of, you know, they've got onto Coachella. You mentioned that it's either going to be number one or number two in the UK album charts. It's, it's closing the gap on years and years right. for the, the number one spot, apparently. And, you know, uh, this style is very in vogue at the moment. So this it, it, this naturally was going to happen. But, you know, a couple of listens to this record, I have not... I, I, like I say, I just found it irritating and, and not... And lacking any kind of real substance and very annoying one thing i should point out i thought that james smith was um better when he was talking about the personal rather than the political so Mm -hmm. there is a song on it tall poppies yeah that stood out to me yeah which is far more of a personal song and i thought that actually grabbed me far more than anything else on the record and I didn't find that irritating and I thought that was a far more interesting direction to go in because I don't know it just it just grabbed me whereas throwing out slogans of fake news and stuff like this without any kind of substance behind it I just found irritating so in my opinion I think they should just ditch the politics altogether and go personal i mean you know it's quite shitty to say what what a band should do in that case but i just don't think they have anything interesting to say with regards to the politics of stuff at all yeah no mate that's fair that's fair i I, i'm not i don't despise the record but i don't love it enough to really kind of get too excited about it one thing i did get excited about and I've just listened to it for the first time, but 40 Watt Sun, Perfect Light. Now, you said that you felt like we should mention this because they're a kind of cult band. And 40 Watt, this is the third 40 Watt Sun album, yeah. who is Patrick Walker, essentially, as a sort of solo thing yeah under the 40 watt sun banner and i've heard the name before but never listened to them before i think they were a trio for a short amount of time but this, this is certainly patrick walker with other um musicians who have come in and collaborated with him he's the singer in um warning who are a doom metal band but this is more of a sort of very emotional folk-led project with very long drawn-out songs and 40 Watt Sun was someone who I was familiar with. I was sent the last album, uh, which was called Wider Than The Sky. And I have to admit, it kind of passed me by a little bit at the time. I do remember listening to it and thinking it was quite nice, but very glacial and very slow and didn't do all that much for me at the time. And I was aware that this was coming out. I was like, I must listen to that at some point. And I was uh, traveling on the train feeling a little bit glum I have to say and I put this on and it really just caught me and I realized that like sometimes you know sometimes you have to go to music rather than music coming to you Mm -hmm. I think this is very much an album that if it catches you at the right moment uh, it can be very 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 emotional and really quite an incredible listen but on the surface it seems like quite a difficult thing to get into it's 67 minutes and 33 seconds the songs are very very 
long and they don't um they don't go to lots of different places some people have called this prog folk and i don't think that's very accurate really i think people are just looking at the song lengths and going oh well because some of these songs are 11 minutes it's proggy but really they're very very simple arrangements but there's something quite beautiful in how stark and simple those arrangements are and patrick has a beautiful voice and i think it's music that allows the writer and by extension the listener to wallow in melancholy which i think can be a really enlightening and positive experience but you have to be in the right frame of mind for it in my opinion so now i go to you steve and and i'm a little curious I gave it one listen just before we started, actually, because I'd kind of forgotten that it would come in, that it was coming out, or it had come out. And it came out last from week. The, yeah, the one listen that I had of it, I thought it was really, really lovely. I cool. had a, a really, uh, just great. I mean, it's grey and miserable here at the moment, and it felt yeah. like it sort of perfectly comp uh, complemented the 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 sort of the wintry feeling that was around me i think he's got a really lovely voice he's got a beautiful turn of phrase very appropriate for the time of year this album definitely yeah and and it's and it's you know it's a it's a dour quite dour downbeat record Mm. but it sounds it sounds great you know yeah yeah the actual product i mean it's not a lot that's like you say, it's not really a lot going on. There isn't a lot going on, no. But that's kind of but it the kept brilliance your of it. Attention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it exactly. Sort of kept my attention the whole time. Yeah, I really like this. I will definitely go back to it. I don't want to say too much about it because I have only listened to it once, but mm. it grabbed me immediately. Which you you wouldn't think this type of music doesn't usually do that, but maybe it's just because of yeah. I kind of went into it expecting it to be very quiet and very kind of slow moving and glacial and all those things. So maybe I was sort of I put it on in a in a, in a place where I was like, well, this is you know definitely the, the time to listen to it mm. and i had actually just been listening to yard act and prior to that i'd been listening to meatloaf and prior to that i'd been in the gym listening to poison the well so <laughs> i was quite kind of het up do you know what i mean i was quite het up so maybe it was the perfect thing to sort to of bring down. me back yeah, yeah, down yeah, to yeah, earth yeah, yeah. again and I, yeah i really liked it i will certainly be going back to this record yeah. i think yeah I, it, it's it's a weird one because on the surface there are a, a myriad of things that we would normally criticize a record for you know really long ponderous songs that don't really go anywhere um but actually i find there's something about this album that almost slows your own internal rhythm down and just makes everything feel slower and more at peace and calm and i think that's it's it's a quality i have no idea how patrick walker does it but but somehow he does and 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 i really you know after not really getting them on their last record i really feel like i got this this time around and i did go back to wider than the sky and realize that it i just listened to that album at the wrong time sometimes you just listen to stuff when the time isn't right but listening to perfect light it was the perfect time like watching scenery go by on the train it's very much like staring into the middle distance kind of record isn't it Mm. um but yeah i i really i thought this was a really lovely record it's very good um that's already out as well perfect like a couple of albums um or no sorry not a couple just one album that is actually coming out today if you're listening to this podcast the day it comes out is omit by grievo grievo are a trio i believe from um austin texas 
Austin, Texas. That's it. I knew it was somewhere in America. I didn't quite know where. And their latest record uh, is called Omit, mm. and it's out on Church Road Records, which is the home of all things kind of gnarly here in the UK. It's Justine and, and Sammy's label from Employed to it's Serve. It's Justine and, and Sammy right? from Employed yeah. to Serve. Yeah, yeah. And it's um, it's not necessarily what you might expect from you know the label that has stuff like Svalbard and palm reader and all those kind of bands on it it's a little bit different from that uh it's basically a sort of shoegazy power indie pop thing i it, guess it, it is i mean I, I i would say i it's a lush sounding really expansive shoegaze band and we talk about a lot of these bands a lot and certainly um justine knows both you and me very very well she knows our tastes very very well and she uh definitely pushed uh, i don't want to say push this onto us but she reminded us a few times she was like that grievo album i think you guys are really gonna dig it um and certainly it's a gorgeous sounding record absolutely and i also completely and utterly totally understand why justine thought yeah this is going to be one for the riot act guys i have to say part of the reason that i sort of wanted to include this a little bit like the yard act thing in that you were saying um you know we don't want to give the impression that just because something's post-punk steve's gonna like it or something like that we've covered a lot of this shoegaze stuff and i feel like me in particular and you to an extent have just been like yeah it sounds lovely it's great i thought this was a gorgeous sounding record but i did find it a bit plodding and a little bit dull as it went on i think whilst the sounds grievo create is absolutely gorgeous I don't dislike listening to this album passively, but when I was kind of like trying to uh, listen for bits and pieces that were going, I just didn't think there was all that much to it. And the tempo is so doom laden. You could call it doom gaze. You know, I mean, there probably is a there probably is a sub genre which is doom gaze. I imagine and we've discussed doom before and how like we more more time more often than not we don't really get on board with the really 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 slow glacial tempo of it i, I it's a tough one because i, I think this is a, a beautifully produced record and it sounds lovely and putting it on in the background i can have a perfectly decent time with it but i also would rather listen to nothing or holy fawn or or even slow crush who they're going on tour with i mean i think i think that could be possibly too much of one thing (laughs) that tour like as as lovely as that tour will sound it's the sort of thing that i might fall asleep on my feet to uh if i was uh going to that tour how do you feel about this album i i mean i quite like it actually i think i certainly prefer it to i think it certainly would be higher in the echelons of this sort of thing than the yard act would be in the post-punk world definitely Yeah, yeah yeah um i would i would put this back on and i don't think i'll choose to listen to yard act again personally yeah i uh, i mean i think it's yeah it's it stays in one place quite a lot yes yes i don't think it's the most dynamic record definitely not. and that's a bit of a problem but again it does just sound very nice it and sounds I it lovely brings, it brings something a little bit i mean you mentioned the kind of doomier passages of it and i suppose in that respect it brings something slightly different 
to a genre that we have covered a lot um i think it would be better to bring something slightly different to that genre whilst also bringing other things whether they're yeah, new or not I agree. alongside yeah, it that's because it does feel like when i first put it on i was like oh this is really cool Same. this is like almost like stompy uh like slow stomp but really kind of air like like stomping through air like wading through dry ice i was like that's sounds wanky but like. i know exactly what you're saying yeah yeah and i thought well, that's quite cool that's pretty cool and then it just sort of stayed there for a long time i think you know yeah. the guitar tone is really cool great there's not a lot you know when you mention bands like nothing there's not a lot that is other than the kind of general feel of the record, in terms of actual songs, there's no really memorable songs exactly. on it. Like, I didn't feel that's that. Well, that is that is the issue, I think, in my opinion. Yeah. Like, I, 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 because I love the sound of this sort of thing. There is a good chance that I will go back to this, to be honest, because, like I say, on in the background, it just sounds lovely. Um, mm. You know, and if they're touring with Slow Crush, I'll, I'll go and see them absolutely, and I might change my mind live. But I just didn't think it was engaging throughout its runtime. And it's only seven songs. The songs are quite long. I'm not actually sure how long this record is, but, you know, 45 minutes or so. And, um, yeah, I, 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 I think it is... I think when detractors of shoegaze... Uh, I think this is what detractors of shoegaze think all shoegaze sounds like. I think they think it sounds this one-dimensional and this kind of like ponderous all the time and i would just say like i would just put death spells by holy fawn in their face and go well here's proof that that's not true um but yeah it's funny isn't it we were just talking about 40 watt sun which you know undoubtedly is a one-dimensional record and it's much longer than grievo as well and has less and arguably has less going well not even arguably does have less going on in it and yet i found that compelling enough to work for 67 minutes but i didn't found grievo compelling enough i guess that's good songwriting i don't know but yeah interesting yeah one. i think it probably is mm, yeah mm. i think it probably is but um you know it's coming out today if you're listening to this podcast the day that it comes out it's called omit by grievo and actually church road records did release something else last week that we should mention quickly as well yes. which is from without by zetra which is a nine. i mean you know talking about things being too long this definitely this definitely isn't too long it's 19 minutes and 12 seconds over five tracks and it's essentially kind of a big gothic hardcore type but not even hardcore but yeah i guess kind of like metally alternative metal with a with gothic flourishes on it yeah i really wanted to bring this in because i thought there was a really i reviewed this for metal hammer and i thought there was a really cool juxtaposition between the really gloomy dark goth guitars and this sort of crystal chandelier incredibly 80s synthy thing um the 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 synths are really bright and sparkly especially when juxtaposed juxtaposed with those dark gloomy guitars and i thought that was just a really lovely sound and i couldn't really recall anyone having done that before the for fans of in the press notes were typo negative and drab majesty which i thought was a really interesting combination and i think that is more or less what we have here um and i was just i was really pleasantly surprised by this so much so that i'm actually going to go and see them at the black heart um 
uh, well, yesterday when this goes out, um, last night when this goes out, but I thought it was really, really, really good. I also thought, well, surely this is a shoe in for Stephen Hill, 80s, big 80s synths and typo negative gothy dark vibes. Now on paper, that's correct, right? But am I of yeah. the impression that's not quite not quite up your i don't know what what, what would you not say quite, no it's not that that what you just said is not not quite up my thing <laughs> this is perfectly up my Alley. whatever you want to however you want yeah. to stick it up the thing of mine that <laughs> where things go Oof. but um i this is i thought it was quite good i mean you know again there's been a lot of, i think you know there's been quite a lot of this type of stuff we've spoke about voices and sugar horse and unto others and grave pleasures and they all do variants on that kind of thing this is probably one of the more metal sounding ones i guess the more kind of it's very different to voices i mean it's not it's not black metal well start, yeah it is it, 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 it's, it, well, it's different to, vo- to um, yeah i mean it, it is different to voices but then voices also they have all of this in their locker they just have many uh, many many other, many things, other things as well, as well. sure okay yeah. i would i would argue uh i think this is decent enough i just think actually again with this type of music i want a really massive memorable gloomy chorus to pop out at me mm. and nothing of that quality of nothing as big as you know there's 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 nothing like a you know a bella lugosi's dead yeah jumping out at me in the same way as you know that, that when i think of mind intruder by grave pleasures and how fucking massive that sounds mm-hmm. you know and, and that's what those bands i think kind of need to aim for and i i don't think this is again i don't think this is bad at all i think it's quite good but i think it is some way away from the very best of this genre but it is early days for them right like they don't even have an album out yet. they don't have an album out they, they have multiple eps out yeah i've seen they've got a few eps but you know you would think they did a cover of Cry Little Sister by the looks of things yeah. from um, from the Lost Boys. They're a duo as well. I mean, I'll, I'm very curious to see them live. The first thing they put out was only was only 2020, yeah, so they're yeah, new. Yeah, yeah. They're absolutely new. I mean, I do see what you're saying in terms of those Grave Pleasures things, but I, I think Grave Pleasures is more of a party vibe. I mean, it's the end of the world party kind of vibe, but it is more party. This struck me more as being a bit more the party's ended and as the sun's coming up kind of thing. So whilst I am, you know, whilst I see what you're saying regarding those hooks and stuff, I don't think it's strictly going for that type of thing. I think all of those bands need to have that to really make what they do work, though. I don't think you could name any great band from that kind of era who don't have those hooks personally hmm. okay i mean i i thought the second song the raven's game had a pretty good hook and call of the void yeah no, there's nothing it's not it's not about i mean they're the two that they released before the yeah. ep comes yeah, out yeah, by, yeah. by the looks of things so that makes sense yeah but yeah i think they're just it, it's early days and i think that would be the thing to concentrate on because it's a it's a cool meld of stuff yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah yeah just needs a bit of um monochrome broadening and sort of um upping of the grandiosity stakes i would say. I understand that i'll report back next week when i uh, go to see them live uh, so so we'll see them but i i thought it was very promising indeed and, and it, yeah, sounded, it, it sounded it sounded promising for sure yeah 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 
Okay, right, let's move on. We've got one news story to talk about, and it is Joe Rogan versus Neil Young. This is the fight that we've all been sort of waiting for, I suppose. Now, Neil Young has essentially demanded that Spotify removes his music due to the vaccine misinformation spread by Joe Rogan, who is now exclusive to Spotify. Is that right? It's an exclusivity mm-hmm. deal with Spotify. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For quite a lot for of money. A which silly amount of money, I imagine, yeah. $100 million for the rights to Joe Rogan's podcast there by all accounts no, there we go yeah you could probably pay people more than 0.0007 the pence per stream if you can afford to give Joe Rogan 100 million dollars <laughs> you'd think wouldn't just you? to go wouldn't you but, yeah. yeah now I don't really know what this is all about because I have to say even though I've got a couple of mates who like Joe Rogan because I'm a white man. We've all got a couple of mates who <laughs> like Joe Rogan. <laughs> I'm a white man in, in my 40s. Yeah. I can't escape people. You should listen to Joe Rogan. He has an estimated 11, uh, 11 million listeners per episode. So yeah, that's not entirely surprising. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I know a couple of people. I don't really know much about him. I did listen. I listened once because, I don't know if I said this before, I went out with a girl once who was friends with Milo Yiannakopoulos, and she said what a nice guy he was and I knew nothing about him or who he was and then I heard and then she said oh he did a podcast recently and it was a Joe Rogan podcast I listened to about five minutes of that and I thought don't need to listen to these people Mm -hmm. they seem like not my kind of people so yes Neil Young wrote an open letter oh by the way I should ask you Renfrey you listen to Joe Rogan uh no I don't because I find the fact that he spreads a lot of misinformation to a absolutely humongous audience genuinely terrifying and probably one of the biggest uh problems we have in modern society today that is not joe rogan himself but the spreading of misinformation is so you're gonna have to fill me in here because i honestly i'm not just being a contrarian or anything i'm not just being a you know again a taylor swift fan pretending to have never heard of gorillas before i don't know what joe rogan says or what he does like like i say i listen to a little bit of him i see people put clips up of someone here and there and you just go i don't really know if i want to listen to him talking to this and that i've seen a clip that he did with billy corgan once i was like all right okay which is just billy corgan talking but in terms of actual joe i don't really know what i'm meant to dislike about joe rogan so if you want to fill me in um well he isn't he's interesting in that he gets a wide range of guests from various ends of the political spectrum on and i think gives them a platform and i think the idea is so that people can make up their own minds i think that's the idea in terms of this specific issue there's a npr article here uh, what the joe rogan podcast controversy says about the online misinformation ecosystem And uh, it says, an open letter urging Spotify to crack down on COVID-19 misinformation has gained the signature of more than a thousand doctors, scientists and health professionals spurred by growing concerns over anti-vaccine rhetoric on the audio app's hit podcast, The Joe Rogan Experience. The medical and scientific experts slammed Rogan's track record of airing false claims about the coronavirus pandemic, vaccines and unproven treatments, calling it a sociological issue of devastating proportions. The controversy seems to stand mainly from an episode of the Joe Rogan experience that came out in December last month uh, as we put this out with a Dr Robert Malone he was a vaccine scientist uh, I suppose still is a vaccine scientist uh, who's now become known as a vaccine skeptic he was banned from Twitter for violating their COVID-19 misinformation policies soon after that YouTube removed footage 
of the interview he did with Joe Rogan as well. It's been quite widely reported in a number of different publications, the controversy of Joe Rogan having this doctor on his podcast. I just wanted to read this from politifact.com. Leaning on his early contributions to research around the mRNA vaccine technology now used in the COVID-19 vaccines, Malone has promoted several false and misleading claims about the COVID-19 vaccines and pandemic. His claim of being the mRNA vaccine inventor and his ability to speak fluidly in scientific terms have given him great appeal to anti-vaccine audiences. I have to confess at this point that I haven't listened to the episode myself, but this has been widely reported. And um, one thing that is really quite eyebrow raising, to say the least, is apparently in the interview, Dr. Robert Malone drew a comparison between COVID-19 vaccination efforts in the US and the environment in Germany in the 1920s and 1930s when the Nazi party rose to power, which, um, well, I'm taking that out of context, but that seemed barney. That's just his opinion, though, isn't it? I mean, he's allowed to say that. That's just his opinion. Well, but this is the thing, isn't it? <laughs> this is the problem. I'm all for free speech up to a point. But when it comes to life and death scenarios and health scenarios, for example, I think maybe a little bit of proper research should be conducted. And I'm not totally convinced Joe Rogan does that. OK, so you're on Neil Young's side, presumably, because Neil Young has written a letter to his management and record label saying they can have Rogan or Young, not both. He said, I want to let Spotify know immediately today that I want all of my music off their platform. I'm doing this because Spotify is spreading fake information about vaccines, potentially causing death to those who believe the disinformation being spread by them. Please act on this immediately today and keep me informed of the time schedule. With an estimated 11 million listeners per episode, the Joe Rogan Experience, which is hosted exclusively on Spotify, is the world's largest podcast and has tremendous influence. Spotify has a responsibility to mitigate the spread of inf- misinformation on its own platform, though the company presently has no misinformation policy. Harsh words from Neil Young coming out swinging. <laughs> what do you reckon about this, Renfrey, well, as a thing, getting your music taken on Spotify in this manner if you know you say i'm on neil young's side there i mean if i had to pick a side i'd like to think that i'm a bit more individualistic than that but if i had to pick a side then yes i would be on neil young's side because as i said uh, at the top of this story i think the spreading of misinformation is one of the most dangerous things that we face as a society and i do appreciate the fact that Robert Malone is a doctor and he was considered a very respected and legitimate scientist until he started making these claims. But it seems kind of insane to me to trust the opinion of this one doctor and give him this huge platform when there are literally hundreds of other doctors and scientists systematically debunking his claims and backing that up with evidence. Mm. Yeah, well, yeah, fair enough. I think like I want to listen to Neil Young and so I kind of still want him on Spotify. I've never listened to the Joe Rogan podcast mm. before. I don't care about that at all. But I do care about listening to Neil Young on Spotify and I think it's an admirable moral stance to take. Yeah, yeah. But I think it will be a shame for me personally. I will feel like it's a shame if Neil Young's music is no longer available to me on that platform. Mm. In terms of numbers and numbers alone... Joe Rogan has many, many more listens than Neil Young. I believe the Joe Rogan Experience is a weekly podcast. And uh, like I said... It's daily, isn't it? It's not daily, is it? I think it's daily. Fucking Christ. Well, no wonder he doesn't do his research properly. (laughs) Well, it's not quite every day, but he does... Let's count how many he's done in January. Probably does nearly as many as we do. Four, five, six, seven, eight... Bet he's never spoken about Tesseract before, though. So 
<laughs> Jokes on him, really, isn't it? <laughs> Up to the 25th of January, he's released 12. So let's say it's every other day, right? They each get 11 million listens, roughly. Neil Young gets 6 million listens a month. Neil Young's entire output. So Joe Rogan means a lot more to Spotify than Neil Young does, which I think is a shame, but that's how it is. But I certainly admire someone like Neil Young taking a stance. I mean, Neil Young is brilliant for this kind of thing. We've talked about Neil Young quite a lot. And if he strongly thinks something, then he will put his mouth where his, his mouth where his words are his words where his mouth what's that phrase <laughs> his money where his mouth there is. we go um and in and you know in this case he'd stand to lose a fair amount of money from that I mean, six million a month that'll be a paycheck of sorts uh, yep. and i say fair play to him for doing that by doing this he's raising awareness that the most popular podcast in the entire world is spreading misinformation about something as important as the covid19 epidemic yeah, well, I tell you what, one thing's for sure. It hasn't made me want to go and listen to the Joe Rogan podcast. No. <laughs> no. I'll stick to Pop Collaborate and Listen and the Richard Herring's Leicester Square Theatre podcast and A Year in Horror with Paul Waller. What's irritating is sometimes he can be a very good interviewer and it kind of depends on the guest and all that sort of thing, but sometimes he's just eye-rollingly wrong and irritating and that doesn't matter when you're only going out to a few thousand people but when you're going out to that many people then you need to do your research a bit better Mm. that's why our show is completely chock-a-block with misinformation (laughs) (laughs) i mean we certainly don't get joe rogan numbers we get enough numbers to have a responsibility not the uh not (laughs) the same kind of responsibility that joe rogan does but uh yeah obviously we get things wrong but the other thing Mm. i will say is we're talking about music and if we get you know if i said later on that bat out of hell came out in 1975 it didn't it came out in 1977 that's not life or death Whereas the stuff that Joe Rogan's talking about and getting involved with is life and death stuff. And that's why it's important. Yeah. It's that simple. Although having said that, if we were to get our research on wargasm wrong and tell you to go and watch them, you might die. (laughs) That's true, actually. Yeah. So you probably need to, we need to be quite careful. Anyway, let's move on and do what we're here to do. Um, On the 20th of January, 2022, 2021 i nearly said even even that feels weird but 2022 mm. uh we lost a truly iconic figure from the world of music meatloaf passed away we'll talk about meatloaf in general um as we go through this little bit here but it came out on the day that the podcast came up and renfrew and i had a little conversation about what we could or couldn't do to kind of have some sort of tribute to meatloaf as you know we, we've done many of these eulogies before but this really felt like a big one and we wanted to pay a genuinely lengthy tribute to him on the show and we decided between the two of us that the best way to do that was to look into the records that made him an icon and it's a record that both Renfrey and I I think really like you'll talk about Bat we've spoken in fact about Bat of Hell too if you go yeah. back to our previous podcast Slut Drops and Beatdowns Again, I believe the episode is called. If you want to go and search that out, yeah. Then um, uh, you can find that and you can hear us talking about that record. But I thought on this show today, we want to give a full deep dive look 
at Bat Out of Hell, the debut album from the Texan singer-songwriter Meatloaf, released on the 21st of October, 1977. 1977. Now, when I say music in 1977, Renfrey, two words, two separate words should pop into your brain immediately. What are those two words? Uh, we haven't, I haven't prepped you for this. I haven't prepped him for this, everyone listening, so you might get it wrong. Well, punk is one Punk of would be one, um, definitely. The other thing I think of when I think 1977 is Star Wars, but that's not what you're <laughs> referring to. No. Uh, uh, but know. you're close. Disco. Disco, of course, yeah. There we go. Punk and disco, the two most popular things happening on either side of the Atlantic, really. But in music, those were the two most popular things happening in music at the time. And it's fair to say that anything that wasn't leaning towards one of those things was going to struggle to get a certain amount of attention around that period, I think it's fair to say. And you would have to work fucking hard for, you would expect, fairly small rewards to be a rock band or a classic soul Motown sounding band to be able to puncture through the media obsession with both of those two genres around that era. That's always the impression that I get from that time. I think that's the way the media paints it. Um... I mean, I'm just looking at the entry here for News of the World by Queen, which came out in 1977. And Queen Mm -hmm. were never a band that critics liked at the time uh, at all. In fact, they were roundly mocked by critics quite a lot. Uh, But, you know, it did get to number four in the UK album chart, number three in the US top album chart. Um, But certainly what was perceived as cool and interesting and in vogue would be punk and yeah disco acts uh which is interesting isn't it because um i think both though that form of punk and definitely disco uh would not be considered cool or would not be considered something that has uh endured in any way shape or form whereas Mm. queen and meatloaf both have which um, just goes to show that uh pursuing whatever is cool in any kind of art or fashion or whatever is just a nonsense really Mm. yeah i mean it's one of those things you think animals by pink floyd came out that year yeah rumors yeah by fleetwood mac came out (laughs) yeah which we'll mention again a little bit so i think i don't i don't want to fuck up the story you're telling because because you're not wrong but i I just i thought we should probably clarify that that Mm. like yes the media will paint it like that but you know there were things that were coming out which were fucking massive you know that weren't in punk or disco yeah the difference between Pink Floyd, Fleetwood Mac, and Queen were that they were already established artists. That's true. Who were kind of continuing to do the thing that they did. Yep. Whereas Meatloaf was very much an upcoming artist of the time. This is his debut album. He and Jim Steinman together, their, their, their debut album. So in kind of... We really should probably start, I guess, with the meeting of meatloaf and jim steinman who is the 
author, the creator of all of the songs on this record. He wrote all the music, uh, yeah, yeah. Wrote all the music, songwriter, producer. It was kind of late 72, early 73, I believe, that those two men met each other. Um, Steinman was working on a musical called More Than You Deserve, which Meatloaf auditioned for. And he was a singer at that point and uh, an actor, a kind of, I guess, a cabaret singer as well. He'd actually been signed to Motown Records as part of a duo with Sean Murphy, known as Stoney and Meatloaf, who were a kind of... Sonny and Cher-esque sort of um, soul group. Uh, They released one self-titled album, which didn't do much. Yeah, it was that Sonny and Cher kind of vibe, though, very much so. Mm. I don't know if you've heard that album, but I actually have. have. It's very, yeah, it's very Sonny and Cher. Right, okay. Uh, Jim Steinman remembers his first impression of Meatloaf, which he told to Classic Rock in the year 2000, saying, Meat was the most memorizing, mesmerizing thing I'd ever seen. He was much bigger than he is now. He was fucking huge. And since I grew up with uh, German composer Richard Wagner, all my heroes were larger than life. His eyes went into his head like he was transfixed. And I think this already instantly kind of um, hints at why Meatloaf was able to burst through the media obsession with disco and punk and actually to cross over and become a huge star because charisma is something which when you say like talk to me about somebody who's cool right who's got charisma and they're cool and you you know you look at jack nicholson in easy rider or you know james dean or you look at idris elba um i won't go into the whole broken records it just it just it just is cool right do you know mm-hmm. what i mean like those those yeah. samuel jackson people say how cool is samuel L. jackson mm-hmm. um you know those are gentlemen who are good who are usually good looking mm-hmm. and just do have that kind of they dress well and they're they, they seem like the sort of people who you yourself would want to be but i don't necessarily think meatloaf is that he's a weird looking guy he's a weird manic odd looking guy but at the same time he has a different sort of and, and had a different sort of charisma to the type of people that I'm talking about here, right? Well, I think it's proof that coolness and charisma are not the same thing because I don't think anyone in their right mind could say that Meatloaf didn't have any charisma. But like I sort of already mentioned, he has never, ever, ever been cool. And I don't think he ever was. And I don't think he was even concerned with being cool in the slightest. The same goes for Jim Steinman, as a matter of fact. That classic rock article that you quoted from, by the way, is fantastic. And you can find it online. It's written by John Mm -hmm. Hotton. Uh, It's Bat Out of Hell. The story behind the album to Hell and Back is a fantastic article, which you should check out if you so fancy. But... Yeah, I I, th- I don't think Meatloaf was concerned with those things at all. He was presenting who he was, you know, Texan boy, didn't really... I, I, I love that story. I think it is from that classic rock piece, actually. Like, like, I know we're not going to go into his childhood too much, or, but his, his mother passed away when he was very, very young. And when um, they were taking the casket out, he, he actually like flung himself at the coffin and said don't take her away from me don't take her away from me in this really huge melodramatic theatrical fashion so that theatrical sense it it was it was just a part of him he always had that um and that definitely definitely came across on stage and mm. in the in the things that Simon and Meatloaf did together and it was just a perfect pairing from that point of view from that point of view I should say because there were <laughs> there were issues later on but yeah in terms of a we talk about pairings all the time 
Mm. And Meatloaf and Jim Steinman's Yings a weird and one. Yangs. Yeah, yeah. It's a weird one. I don't want to get into the disillusion of it too much now because you probably do that a little bit later. But they kind of needed each other for everything to work, which I think the records that they did without each other kind of proved. But they were also mm. sort of at each other's throats a little bit. But yeah, it's a fascinating partnership, certainly. Yeah. So by 1975, Meatloaf was touring a National Lampoon show while Steinman had been working on songs inspired by Peter Pan. Now, at this point, it's worth saying, I think, that Meatloaf's profile, although he was not a superstar by any stretch of the imagination, his profile had definitely risen by this point due to his appearance in the 1974 cult classic movie The Rocky Horror Picture Show, where he played Eddie, one song, and gets murdered. Hot patootie and then you're dead fucking classic i mean i'm just going to put it out there we had a conversation and this is a little bit of a it's not a spoiler but it's something that might happen in the future i considered recently doing the soundtrack to the rocky or picture show as a classic album that could very well happen at some point i think it'd be a brilliant one to do i think it'd be a, a so much fun it'd be very different to what we've done mm. in the past and we'd have to watch the film again which wouldn't be the end of the world but um I think it would be inaccurate to say that he steals the film because there are so many moments in that film which are just so like, what the fuck, you know, like so crazy. But the fact that he makes such a big impression in and amongst all the other crazy shit that is happening in that film is pretty astonishing, you know, and... The sense that the rock and roll Teddy boy thing that he employs, he plays Eddie, doesn't he? That's the the character's yeah. name. It's just, I've, it's, it, it, he really, yeah, steals the show a little bit too much, but he made a really big impression, really big. And impression. that song's an absolute fucking banger. Yeah, an it's not absolute even, banger. You know what? In any other musical, it'd be the best song in that musical, but mm-hmm. I, I, probably not even in the top three in Rocky Horror Picture Show. That's... Yeah, no, it's it's not actually. And actually, if you listen to the the kind of original cast recording with, the, and you listen to the Time Warp, which is the most famous song yeah, yeah. from the from the musical, you can hear Meatloaf. Like his voice is so distinct that even yeah. though he's not on stage or on the set or in the movie when that song's being sung, but you can hear him doing a harmony in the chorus on that song. Mm. And it is so clearly, distinctly Meatloaf. Mm. Like, so clear. So, yeah, he even when he's not fronting a song, mm-hmm. fronting the only song, and he's mm. not even on the set, and you're not even supposed to think he's there. I listened to it today, actually, and I was like, he's deaf, you can hear it. Yeah. Like, I, I haven't even checked the Wikipedia page. I don't feel like I all, like, looked at the notes or anything. I don't need to. Mm. That is him mm. there in that song. No doubt about it. Um. So, yeah, a classic movie, which kind of upped his... I mean, that was a slow burn as well. Yeah. Rocky Horror Picture Show. But yeah. I think it kind of helped raise his profile a little bit. Uh, Steinman wrote a bunch of songs for this project, this kind of unnamed project, uh, for a workshop. And has spoken about how he had no real idea originally of what Battle Hell was meant to become. Meatloaf had liked three of the songs that he'd written in this kind of updated Peter Pan rock and roll style fantasy thing. What? So he decided to write some more. Wasn't it called? Ne- I thought it was called Neverland. I th- it was called Neverland. Yeah, yeah, Neverland, yeah. yeah. And it was... I mean, I, I only stop you on that because, just because the the premise is fascinating. It's like a, a Peter Pan musical set in the future, with or something yeah. insane like that. It's the most bizarre. I mean, I'd really like to see that. I mean, we can't now because, but you know, Jim Steinman and yeah. Meatloaf have uh, passed. But I, I would have loved to see 
a Peter Pan musical set in the future. That sounds absolutely bonkers and incredibly yeah. Jim Steinman. <laughs> it really does. Um, so those three songs kind of morphed into seven pieces that became Bat of Hell. Uh, Jim Steinman has said, I never intended to do music. I didn't think I was a good enough musician. I was going to do film and theatre, but I figured this is fun. Let's do this. I didn't want it to be just a bunch of songs. I wanted it to feel like you were entering a cinematic or complete theatrical environment. No one could deal with it. They couldn't figure out what it would even sound like when it was finished. And that, I think, is a really interesting quote because... You know, we'll, we'll we'll talk in a second about them shopping the record round to record labels and stuff. Yeah. But Jim Steinman himself, um, he kind of admits that he didn't know or understand what music was at, at that point, and is just making this massive, really thinking about music in a completely different way to oh, I have to make an album, and that is. I, and we said it about again weird comparison but we said it with code orange when we interviewed code orange and jamie was saying you know we sometimes don't we're not influenced by actual music we're influenced by other things so if you're going it. i'm gonna write a musical or i'm gonna write an album but none of my influences are actually musical that's a really fucking interesting place to start from my 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 inspiration is just cinematic mm. a theatrical environment that's that that's the starting point not j- music genres not sounds something completely different what an interesting idea well it certainly wasn't typical music genres was it i mean i know that he listened to a lot of opera and he came from that theater background and the musical nature of what is in those meatloaf songs and those jim steinman songs is just so massive i, I mean we rewatched the the BBC documentary on Meatloaf, which they've just put back up on iPlayer and is well worth watching if you've not seen it. But in that documentary, Jim Steinman describes his own music as feverish, strong, romantic, violent, rebellious, fun and heroic, which is exactly what it is. It's all of those things. And yeah, certainly in terms of taking that theatricality and putting it into the mainstream pop world so to speak i mean the only time i can think that that had been done previously was bohemian rhapsody but i think meatloaf and this is going to be a bonkers things to say but meatloaf makes queen seem restrained you know <laughs> the the sheer amount of pomp and and ridiculous overblown ott musical theater that is put on to Jim Steinman's songs and that Meatloaf brilliantly brings out with his larger-than-life character, both literally and figuratively, is just so crazy and so OTT. Yeah, I think it makes Queen look like a folk singer-songwriter or something like that. And I, that's no diss on Queen. It's, not, it's just I, I just think, re-listening to Bat Out of Hell the last couple of days, it did, it did strike me that this is mad. It's so mad. And it feels like it hasn't been... I don't know, you'd have to go to, like, Igor or something like that to find something that feels more bonkers than Meatloaf. And considering mm. we're talking about an album that came out in 1977, I think that's pretty crazy, really. It is pretty crazy. I tell you what I would like to have seen them shopping the actual album around labels. Yeah, tell us tell us about this. This is You great. say all of that and then I mean the recording of a project of such 
vast cinematic scope meant that the idea of demo in the record was impossible unlikely <laughs> and ridiculous yeah. an idea so instead they were going into offices music industry label offices around the country and playing i'm guessing basic rudimentary versions with what that sounds like kind of stripped down back of hell i have no idea i assumed jim Steinman would write on piano so i assumed mm-hmm. it would be Steinman on piano meatloaf performing the songs i'm sure with all the theatricality and pomp that you can imagine and they brought in um who was the woman who sang with them as well uh ellen foley that's it and they brought in ellen mm. foley to do the the female parts as well especially on uh, paradise on the dashboard by the light paradise by the last uh, what the fuck is it? paradise by the light of the dashboard the dash- thank you yeah. paradise by the dashboard light and yeah. they, they were just basically <laughs> performed like i don't know and it was more like an audition than a demo in a weird way i, I yeah. suppose the way that they would have done it it would be very confusing yeah. to record industry types around the time, I'm sure. Uh, famous CBS label boss Clive Davis even referred to Meatloaf as Ethel Merman <laughs> in their meeting before showing them the door and telling them they didn't understand rock music at all, which Jim Simon found really funny, but left Meatloaf cursing down the street, saying, mm. fuck you, Clive, down the street at him, which is quite funny as well. Um, playing it live and with Meatloaf being Meatloaf, trying to inject stuffy offices full of suited music record label suit types with the technicolor sound and feel of bat out of hell would have meatloaf spitting and sweating into the faces of all of these people who i'm sure just fucking weirded out and terrified by it all i imagine so yeah yeah well what an odd thing to experience i mean the thing is You'd love to see it. And it's a shame that, you know, like now that would be the sort of thing that someone would have filmed and would eventually yeah. be put up. To, but it's it's total it's total music industry lore at this point, isn't it? Well, so if you can find someone from that time who was like, yeah, yeah, I was in the label that turned it down and five of us sat there being like, what the fuck is this? You'd love to talk to that guy. I was about to say the label that turned it down. We should point out that this wasn't just done for one or two label people. The way that the story is told is that they effectively went round to every label doing this and every label turned them down now whether that's an exaggeration or not i mean it wouldn't surprise me if it's an exaggeration considering it's coming Mm. from the meatloaf camp but i am of the impression that they went to lots and lots and lots and lots of different labels clive davis was just one of them he's Mm. a big player so he often gets quoted with it but he was just one of them and 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 put on this sort of audition show rather than just giving a demo tape um (laughs) it's absolutely mad there's that brilliant bit in the documentary where meatloaf talks about how clive davis reacted and said um so this is clive davis's words do you know how to write a song do you know anything about writing if you're going to write for records it goes like this a b c b c c i don't know what you're doing you're doing a d f g b d c you don't know how to write a song have you ever listened to pop music have you ever heard any rock and roll music you should go downstairs when you leave here and buy some rock and roll records amazing which is great like and and to, to give clive davis some credit 
he's not wrong. <laughs> like, the, the songs do go A, D, F, G, B, D, C. You know, the structure of them is insane. I mean, Jim Steinman was listening to more opera than he was rock and roll. It was clearly a rock and roll thing going on there as well. But um, but I, that's kind of the, the beauty of it in a weird way, I think. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It was two years of shopping the album around before it got into the hands of Todd Rundgren the famous Canadian producer who happened upon them and he was a man who agreed to record Bat of Hell. Rundgren said he rolled on the floor laughing when he first heard the record adding, it was so out there, I said, I've got to do this. So uh, they accrued a band and went to Bearsville Studio near Woodstock, New York to record the record. And I think it's worth pointing out because people will talk about Meatloaf and they will talk about Jim Steinman in talking about this record quite a lot. But I think it's, um, and you know, rightly credited with the writing and the creation of of this piece. Yeah, but I think definitely. it's important, definitely important to point out the part that Todd Rundgren played, not just in giving both of these men a chance, but also as a guitarist and a producer on the record, making it kind of sing in the bombastic way that those two people had imagined. Yeah. In fact, Meatloaf has claimed that Todd Rundgren arranged all of the parts as Jim Steinman could hear in his head what it wanted to sound like but he could only kind of hum what he wanted as opposed to actually musically being able to tell right. each instrument what he wanted them to do which i think is quite an interesting thing as well um steinman has said that todd rungren was the only genius he's ever worked with mm. and meatloaf added it was one of the most mind-blowing uh, one of the most mind-blowing moments in my life was watching todd rungren play the guitar and do it in one take and one take only in 15 minutes he played the lead solo and then went back and did the harmony guitars at the beginning the whole thing didn't take him more than 45 minutes then todd mixed the record in one night he started at six o'clock in, in the morning and finished at about four o'clock in the no sorry he started at six o'clock and finished at about four o'clock in the morning so um again when wargasm tell you that they've got a good work ethic <laughs> <laughs> because they did four gigs in 2020 i can't even imagine mixing a record as complicated and uh well convoluted i'm gonna say as this in a night basically or a day and a night that's absolutely insane i think mm. um todd rundgren brings this excellent Van Halen-esque sort of guitar histrionics um, side to it. You know, I mean, it's not quite as impressive as what Van Halen was doing. No shade on Todd Rundgren, but there's certainly all those kind of like squealing guitars and that the kind of making a guitar sound like a motorbike kind of thing. There's a lot of, uh, yeah, there's a lot of that that stylish guitar playing all over it. Um, which I'm it's worth sure saying with that Van Halen thing, this is a year before the Van Halen debut album comes out, so no one's even heard Eddie Van Halen at this point. That's actually a really because that comes out in 1978. That's a really good point that I had not considered at all. Um, yeah, you're absolutely right to pick me up on that. Well, in that case, uh, I take back the not as good as Van Halen thing because that's pretty extraordinary, isn't it, really? Because there is a, you know, it's you're not quite talking finger tapping or anything like that, but there's certainly a lot of the kind of dive bomb type stuff and all that kind of thing, which I think Van yeah. Halen would become associated with, definitely. Mm. Yeah, Rundgren really is point. actually credited with a motorbike solo. That's it, in yeah, it yeah, as yeah. well. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's very cool. Um, once the recording started, a potential deal with RCA Records fell through during the sessions and Rundgren himself had to put up the money to finish the record off before it was released by the CBS Records subsidiary Cleveland International. And thus, Bat of Hell 
was released. We should probably talk about our own opinions of the record, Renfrey, because I've listened to it a couple of times recently. I should say, for the record, I don't think I'd ever listened to Bat of Hell all the way through until a couple of years ago, until maybe for about four, four or five years ago. Okay. I'd never actually sat down and listened to the whole thing in full before. Mm. And yeah, I obviously knew the big songs from it, but I didn't know the whole record as an entire piece. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm presuming that you probably listened to it before I did. Uh, yes, I listened to it. Uh, well, as we have talked about in a previous episode, the first album that I ever bought with my own money was Bat Out of Hell 2. So I would have heard it, yeah, probably for the first time when I was nine or ten years old. I have to say, I feel like I like Bat Out of Hell the most I ever have done in my life now rather than then back then I was kind of like oh Bat Out of Hell 2 is better um, that that is incorrect that's not true um, <laughs> that's definitely <laughs> not right um, I just discovered Bat Out of Hell 2 first basically and therefore I thought it was better because I was more familiar with the songs um, but yes the way that it flows and the way it's of one piece and the way that it's also extraordinarily dynamic as well uh, is really quite incredible it's it's very um there are bits on this record which personally i think are far too ott and are it's difficult for me to go well i really like the beginning monologue bit at the uh at the beginning of um oh uh she you took the words right out of my mouth for example you know that jim simon does i don't really need that for example um but listening re-listening to the album again in the last couple of weeks i think it is a really extraordinary musical statement i agree i mean i i I, it's one of the broadest and i mean that in sort of every sense of the word one of the broadest sounding records i think i've ever heard in my life yeah the op the opening to bat of hell which has been spoken about hell i mean bat of hell the the single version Mm is mad but when you add the opening that you get on the album it's fucking insane and it's got ballads that i can actually stomach like two out of three bad which i think is is great that's Um, just to sorry interrupt very quickly i think the thing that i hadn't noticed before is how good the ballads on bat out of hell are and actually that's a large part of the reason why i think it's better than bat out of hell 2 because i think the (laughs) the the ballads on bat out of hell 2 looking back at it now i didn't feel this way when i was eight when i bought bat out of hell 2 but they're so syrupy and so kind of there and there's something about the ballads on bat out of hell where you just go you just go with it for some reason you know so i yeah i think that's a big important factor sorry go on and i think the kind of the hard rock i mean when i was a kid i used to think well you know this is responsible for like power metal and I think actually the mm, thing about mm. this, I mean, I think it's probably had quite a big influence I, 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 on a lot I of think, the power metal yeah, stuff. I think it probably did. Yeah. But there's not really listening back to it today. When you think of the, the hand claps towards the end of you took the words out of my mouth, which is so kind of do whoppy, mm. you know, 1950s rock and roll. Like, I just don't ever think someone like Ingve Malmsteen or, rainbow or anything richie blackmore would do and then going into certainly man of war and shit like that i just don't think they'd ever do anything as fun or 
you know, slinky as that. And certainly slinky. I think the over top nature over the top nature of Bat Out of Hell is clearly an influence on power metal. Mm. But you're right, there are um there are nuances and subtleties, that Motown kind of sound, even the rock and roll sound. I mean I know that Jim Steinman claimed that he didn't listen to any rock and roll and wasn't much of a musician, blah blah blah. But Paradise by the Dashboard Light is a prog rock and roll song, isn't it? basically yeah, um, it's fucking mad that it's song mad. absolutely mad yeah ellen foley as we spoke about you know she comes in and absolutely smashes it here it yeah. is a mad song and i think you know the the record the last two records paradise by the dashboard light and for crying out loud which are not two that i i mean you know i don't associate the record with that i associate it with took the words out of my mouth and the title track and two out of three ain't bad and you know those last two songs i was actually like these are genuinely bewilderingly fantastic songs that bear no resemblance to the start and the end bear absolutely no resemblance mm. to each other mm. and the journey that they take you on is really really fantastic now do i adore this record in the same way as like you know like we spoke about would you know would we do a classic album on this um and we obviously we aren't going to do that. Mm. This is probably the closest thing you'll get to mm -hmm. some sort of classic album on it. And but I great and there are bits in it where I'm like, God, it, it it's a lot. Mm. Do you know what I mean? It's a lot. It's a lot of stuff to be like, what the fuck is going on? But you've got to respect that. Like you've got to respect how brilliantly they meld it together and you never i mean you're never bored listening to this are you mm. you couldn't be bored listening to it no no certainly not and whilst you know i did want to point out the fact that you know punk wasn't the only thing that was going on in 1977 as you pointed out it was the thing that people were talking about and excited about punk and disco and certainly this is as far away from the that attitude of punk as you could possibly get but then you said on the phone to me the other day i'm going to credit you with this that actually at that time arguably this is the most punk thing you could do isn't it you know <laughs> yeah yeah i mean you said that when because i mean i if you go back to our episode talking about 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 two i was like He's mad. He did it. He did this. He waited till grunge was massive, and then did Bat of Hell too. It's almost like he's going out of his way to be not cool. Do you know what I mean? It's almost like you're deliberately going out of your way yeah. to not be cool. And I remember you going, "Oh, it's kind of a punk thing to do." And I think at the time I went, "Oh, I'll steady." But actually, when I think about it, the, punk. Whether you want to use the word punk or whatever word descriptor you want to use for it, you the the single minded attitude of someone who is like fuck you mm. i'm going to do whatever i want to do mm. and i don't care what's going on now again we were having a discussion yesterday did meatloaf see punk and go i'll be the antidote to it i'll be the reaction to it or was he just so blissfully unaware that it was going on and he wanted to do his own thing that i mean it's probably more likely to be the latter than the former i, think I would we say kind of know it's the latter because like we said these songs have been written in 1975 74 mm. 75 we, we kind of know that it's the latter and it is a bit of a media spin to kind of go oh it's a reaction to punk and all that kind of thing but it still stands that the fact that this album came out in 1977 when you know everything else was anti this seriously ridiculous ott musical theatrical kind of thing it's certainly a fun 
thing for people like us journalists basically to point out isn't it crazy that this album came out at that time and i think the way that it's endured as well i kind of already said that but if a sex pistols type band released never mind the bollocks today you get towers of london i mean (laughs) like towers of london is obviously not as that towers of london records obviously not as good as never mind the bollocks but I think Meatloaf, I mean, just look at the Bat Out of Hell musical and all those sorts of things. Look at the outpouring since he's passed. You know, this has endured in a way that that form of punk hasn't. And it's uh, it's kind of surprising because, you know, to, the, the critics can get it wrong because the reception to the record, I found the quite small original, you know, unsurprisingly, Finding reviews from the time was quite difficult, but I have found a few. Rolling Stone um, said, Meatloaf earned his somewhat eccentric name as a performer in the Rocky Horror Picture Show. The theatrical torture, although he had previously spent several years as a rock singer in Detroit, even recording for a single or, for, for, or two for Motown. Battle of Hell reflects such diversity, but can't resolve it. Meatloaf has an outstanding voice, but his phrasing is way too stage-struck to make the album's pretensions to comic book street real life. He needs a little less West Side Story and a little more Bruce Springsteen. Interesting. But, and okay. I want to come back to Springsteen, but yeah. Yeah, well, he's going to get mentioned by another class act from our old buddy, Robert Christogu. <laughs> now, if you don't follow us on, or if you don't sign up for our Patreon page, you may go, well, who's Robert Christogu? Well, he is our nemesis, essentially. And or, you might go, review- or you might go, why is Steve pronouncing his surname wrong uh, yeah, <laughs> on purpose? Yeah, but anyway, he's uh, uh, someone who seems to not like any music that we like, weirdly. No, basically. Um, in a i found his c minus review of bat of hell he also gave a c to exodus by bob marley in the same thing as well so <laughs> fucking Christ. you're on fire mate here's what he says here's where the pimple comes to a head if this isn't adolescent angst in its death throes then buddy holly lived his sweet unselfconscious life in vain the lyrics offer wit amid heat and power and the music pulls out the stops quite knowingly. Will Phil Spector soon be remembered as the Rachmaninoff of rock and roll? Yeah, pretty much. Occasionally, it seems that horrified, contemptuous laughter is exactly the reaction this production team intends. And it's even possible that 2% of the audience will get the joke. But the basic effect is grossly grandiose. Bruce Springsteen, beware. This is what you've wrought, and it could happen to you. C-. minus. Thoughts on those reviews, Renfrey? Um, it's not surprising, is it? I mean, again, I think um, many, many critics often can um, get wound up in what is cool. And it's so I, I mentioned it earlier, Queen very seldom... They had a couple of critics who really, really loved what they did, but they actually more often than not got really rubbish reviews, and that's because Queen weren't cool, and I think arguably Queen have never been cool. Um, I don't know, maybe with the musical, but not whilst Freddie was alive. I don't think Queen were ever cool. Um, maybe just just after for a bit. I think just after um, like Live Aid and stuff. Yeah, maybe, like, oh, okay. maybe, yeah, maybe. But um, but yeah, I, I I don't think you know what's good and what is cool. It won't be of any surprise to learn Uh that I don't think those things are actually connected in any way, shape or form. Sometimes they can be connected, 
but I don't think they they obviously aren't in this case. I mm. would like to ask you um, about the Springsteen stuff because doing the research for this, I found so many people comparing Bat Out of Hell to Bruce Springsteen. And there is a great little factoid that we haven't gone into yet. Max Weinberg is the drummer on um, Bat Out of Hell, who was uh, mm-hmm. the E Street band um, drummer. And of course, mm-hmm. the uh, the father, father to Jay Weinberg, Jay Weinberg from Slipknot. Slipknot. And that was interesting because I was like, you know what? The similarities between Meatloaf and Slipknot, th- they do exist in the theatricality yeah. and stuff. They do exist. And obviously, you know, Slipknot's a bit more serious and Meatloaf is a bit more tongue-in-cheek and Meatloaf is more OTT. But it is quite interesting that... Well, it's funny because Meatloaf came into the Metal Hammer offices when I first started doing the Metal Hammer podcast. Yeah. And Merlin interviewed him and Merlin said, oh, what do you think of Slipknot? And you think now you kind of go, ah, oh, there would have been a lot of things you could have... I think, you know, I think in the back then maybe we didn't quite treat Meatloaf maybe the reverence that he deserved, deserved. Yeah. and sort of asking him about Slipknot seems like a bit of a kind of like snooty thing to do or like a bit of a kind of trolly thing to do but i think now had that have happened in the last few years i don't think he would have been treated in that way yeah yeah no, i mean yeah and which is no dis on merle on, no on no no it's not no yeah, 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 no yeah. no i think he himself was like ah, it's a shame we didn't do a bit more rather yeah. than just asking him what he thinks about modern bands. Yeah, you know? yeah. I, I, it was really nice seeing those photos. Uh, Mel kind of uh, uh, put them up on social media. It was really, really awesome to see that. But what I actually wanted to ask you, Reece Springsteen, was did you see this connection with Springsteen and Meatloaf? Because I have to say, prior to doing this research, it did not occur to me at all that Meatloaf and Bruce Springsteen, bar the fact that Mike, Max Weinberg was in the band, had any kind of associations or connections at all. And yet it seems to come up again and again and again yeah it's a bit of a weird one isn't it i think it is a it is a weird one i mean i i guess you can see it but then i think it seems more to me like springsteen would have been i don't know i was gonna say maybe like the 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 meatloaf sound i mean that's not really true like born to run was 75 so oh yes it was mid mid 70s before yeah. it was before this so you know there's definitely there's definitely stuff that springsteen had been doing yeah i can ki- I, I can kind of see it a little bit but even at springsteen's most bombastic um he's the man on the street I, yeah i never think he goes into total theatricality yeah well, I, I think this is why I thought it was a bit weird because I always, you know, blue collar we talk about with Bruce Springsteen and every ma- that every man quality that he has. The thing that he is still revered for is the fact that even though he plays stadiums, he feels like he can relate to you or me. And that is the, just like the complete opposite of where me Like, <laughs> I don't feel like I can... I don't feel like I have anything it's not that i don't have anything in common with meatloaf but he doesn't feel like an everyday character he's larger than life sort no. of thing no no the, the one thing that i did read which i thought was quite interesting i could see is that they both write a lot about teenage angst and stuff i was like okay mm-hmm. well i can see that but they do it in a completely different way springsteen's comes from reality whereas Meatloaf's comes from theatre. And I'm not saying mm. that either one is better than the other or anything like that, but... I think that that, that Phil Spector wall of sound, they do... I mean, I was just thinking, you know, when I think of a song like 
hungry heart from the river i mean that's again three years after this record yeah came out, yeah right but it has got that kind of they both do have that like i say i don't i think calling hungry heart like bombastic maybe is not really the right thing but it's certainly got that big overdriven wall of sound and that renette style thing that phil specter so i can i can see how both of them production wise for their big songs have been influenced by phil specter that that would be the big connection i would pull yeah but like you said the river came out three years after mm. bat out of hell i mean we had greetings from ashbury park new jersey the wild the innocent and the east street shuffle and born to run at this point mm. prize and I, I don't know I, I i just i hadn't really seen yeah, it before like the title track of born to run is a, a little bit you know like you could it's not a million million miles away but it is different it's still. not a million miles away but i'd say in terms of theatricality and like pomp it mm. is quite far away from me. It's like, quite far away. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's many, many, many miles. Maybe not millions, but but it's on another continent, I'd say. <laughs> yeah, know? definitely. You're going to need your passport <laughs> yeah, to get stamped exactly. a few times yeah, to get there, exactly. probably. You're right, yeah. yeah. So the record peaked, and this fucking amazed me, at number 14 on the US Billboard 200. Mm. That remains its peak position. And this is even more surprising it hit that position on the 16th of september 1978 which is just a year under the release of the record so you're talking you know what 11 months just just shy of 11 months of after the release of the record yeah. it peaks peaks at number 14 it also peaked at number nine on the uk albums chart it first charted in the uk on the 11th of march 1978 that's five months after it's released yeah that was its first chart in appearance but it ended up spending a whopping great 522 weeks on the uk album chart now only dark side of the moon by pink floyd and the aforementioned rumors by fleetwood mac have spent longer in the uk album chart than bat out of hell mm -hmm. And yet, it's still only peaked at number nine. That is pretty fucking astonishing. Um, yeah, that's the that that is the absolute epitome of a slow burn, isn't it? I, I suppose in that sense, yeah. Absolutely, but it did peak at number one in Australia, where it has gone on to sell 1.75 million copies. That's 25 times platinum in Australia, making it the biggest selling album in the history of Australian music. Yeah. I mean, it's not Australian music, but yeah, I, I, yeah, I know, but I know in, what you in mean. Music in, in music in Australia, yeah, yeah, yeah uh, I, which is a ma I mean, I should have I should have feigned surprise there, but you told me this over the phone the other day. But that is mm. mad. That is absolutely mad, isn't it? It's the most yeah. popular album in Australia. Uh, there we go. Yeah, ever, ever. anything, ever. ever, 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 ever. Yeah, it's insane. It also went to number one in Holland and New Zealand. That is the only other places that it's gone to number one. But yet, despite the fairly meager placing for it in many charts, it has gone fourteen times platinum in the United States of America. That's fourteen million copies. Eleven times platinum in the UK. That's three point three million copies. Seventeen times platinum in New Zealand, which is two hundred uh, 255,000 copies twice platinum in Denmark which is 40,000 copies platinum in Holland and Germany half a million copies each it has gone two times diamond in Canada which is 2 million copies and it ended up being the 13th best selling album of 1978 in the United States of America and then the 70th best selling album in the United States of America in 1979 so wow. again 
the slow not just a slow burn mm. but a continual continual level of more and more people over time slowly but surely getting into this record mm. um i also mentioned australia check this out renfrey this is a fucking unbelievable fact it was the 50th best-selling album in australia in 1991 wow <laughs> right <laughs> okay it was the 12th best-selling album in australia in 1993 wow the year, the year battle 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 came, came out. out interesting yeah 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 it was the 82nd best-selling album in australia in 2007 on its 30th anniversary wow wow there we um, go. As of 2007, Australia, it was in Australia, it was selling a minimum of 200,000 copies a year, every year. Every year it was selling that amount, at least, like every year throughout that time. Uh, that, that, yeah, that is, that is insane. Yeah. That is fucking, that's fucking nuts, right? Yeah. Uh, Kerrang! named it the 38th best metal album of all time in 1989. I suspect that will have changed if they were to do that today but you know there yeah. we go also arguably well, well it's i mean it's not a metal album but 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 fair play yeah fine yeah it was also on rolling stones list of the 500 best albums ever made on their initial list in 2003 it placed at number 343 but as of the list that they revised in 2020 it, it completely dropped out yeah which mm. seems a little bit harsh i did look like usually what we do is we look at the albums of the year from the time and stuff i had a look at the enemy list i'd look at the rolling stones critics list of um and their readers list both of 1977 and 1978 it did not think feature in a single one of them uh, the title track did all the singles from it did not feature in any of the lists yeah. in the enemy the enemy had a massive list of honorable mentions not mentioned at all mm. i looked through the melody maker one they only actually awarded one album they just had a album of the year at that point and they started in 1978 wasn't there but i also found an old mag called cream which is a kind of rock magazine a hard rock yeah. magazine which some of you may have heard of and it seemed you know like that seemed like that would be the place where you might find it there was a top 20 albums and a top 20 singles in there and again nowhere to be seen in mm. fact there's a vote for the best music writer and our old mate robert chrisigou comes second behind lester bangs so i found robert chrisigou on more end of year lists <laughs> than meatloaf the year he released bat of hell <laughs> Yeah, there you go. I mean, like, it's not cool, is it? Not cool. It's not cool. Not but cool. slowly but surely, that, as we've, you know, sort of hinted at, that album began to find an audience. And when you look at live footage from that time, I think, you know, the, the version on Spotify now, the kind of deluxe version on Spotify now, and we did, you can you can see the footage of the bizarre opening to the Meatloaf live experience around that time with Jim Steinman coming out and just bashing the shit out of his piano mm. just absolutely pummeling his piano as meatloaf walks out yeah. and it's weird <laughs> like it's really weird it's really weird hilariously over the top and then the um the old gray whistle test performance of paradise for dashboard light you can see why people were intrigued and ultimately completely seduced by this record yeah we should um, say that that old way uh, old gray whistle test performance is basically what made the album really take off in the uk um mm -hmm. it's bonkers isn't it do you want to yeah. describe it Steve? yeah well no but just before i do by all accounts old gray whistle test was that that performance was so 
loved by people that they had to show it again the next week oh, because right. I got so many letters and people writing in about it. Right, right, right. Um, I can't imagine anyone would have ever seen anything like it before. And um, I don't know. Has anyone ever seen anything like it since on the old Grey Wessel test? Probably not, I'm guessing. I, I, it, yeah, I mean, to perform like that in front of no audience, apart from just like Bob <laughs> Harris in his chair, <laughs> yeah. it, it, it's fucking nuts. I mean, they play the song, but there's obviously the bit towards the end where the relationship is breaking down and yes it tells the story it tells the story and the history of a relationship and it goes from like uh they're they're making out and she stops him and says uh before we continue and before we consummate this love let's say you must tell me that you love me and he's like yeah 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 sure and then it goes forward in time um and uh talks about the breakup of the relationship basically and it does all of this in eight minutes or something ridiculous like that that's you know mm. just jim Diamond's ridiculous ott songwriting but that's basically the story of the song yeah and they don't just perform that they actually actively act that out <laughs> featuring ad libs of meatloaf saying fuck you yeah. Uh, like screaming scre- literally screaming his guts <laughs> up and d- a proper like quite a, uh, you know they, they were kissing and groping each other yeah. just stood in the middle of and i was like oh i mean that seems quite saucy it's raunchy by 2022 standards it's raunchy yeah yeah it's raunchy and it's just an incredibly it's an unforgettable once you see it you can't unsee it Definitely. it's like <laughs> I, I was like, is this good? Would If I'd seen this at the time, would I think it was good? I was sitting there going, would I have liked this? Because I was like, man, that's ballsy. Like, it's so fucking ballsy. And it's so over the top. It's mm. so over the top. Yeah. I, I, and I was like, would I like this or not? And I think I would have just been... Well, we'll get on to my like, young me's reaction to Meatloaf. But I think I would have been scared. Yeah. I think I would have gone like, I'm kind of scared by this. It's really intimidating and weird. Yeah. I've watched the footage a few times over the years. And I still don't know if i like it or not <laughs> i still don't know but i admire it because it is just like i said unlike anything i would have seen before and i can't really think of anything i mean there probably are bits and pieces there probably are things but they're probably not things that i would bother to check out personally it's probably more in the sort of proggy realms that i'm mm. less bothered about but my goodness yeah it is a very very memorable performance uh, undoubtedly yeah for sure and i mean they were getting booed you know open for the first show they did was opening for cheap trick Mm. cheap trick and they got booed you know getting booed off stage and things chucked at them and just quickly what an odd pairing cheap trick and (laughs) that is fucking insane that is pretty uh, weird I like Chip Trick, but that is pretty weird. But also, also, just to counter, who the fuck do you put Meatloaf with? I guess Queen. Queen. <laughs> yeah, one, right? yeah, I guess Queen. But yeah, Queen probably is the only one. Yeah. yeah. That would have been the only one I would have thought. Uh, by the end of the tour, Meatloaf had jumped off stage in Ontario and broken his leg, meaning he had to compete the rest of the tour in a wheelchair, which I just cannot <laughs> imagine what that would have looked like. Fucking hell. Wow. No. But it eventually, it, you know... The constant touring, the constant playing live, the constant like, what is this? Where's this come from? Who are these people? What the fuck's going on? It became an unmistakable piece of popular culture, a genuine landmark piece of popular culture. 
that sold so much in an era of punk when this sort of thing was becoming so passe you know yeah. like it just wasn't again it wasn't cool but you know t- today you know the, the the cover the look the feel the sound everything about it, it does feel like a classic it does feel like an iconic piece of 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 work and when i was a kid i put this on twitter the other day after i heard about meatloaf when i was a kid my dad had this album on vinyl and it literally scared me to the point that i would not come into the room oh, if wow. it was on show oh it wow. seems weird today because i've got some fucking cannibal corpse vinyl behind <laughs> yeah. me which is very horrible <laughs> shit in there but i was i was terrified of it i was genuinely fucking terrified what age are we talking of... like 16 17 <laughs> Yeah, yeah, like four. four. Okay, you know I mean? okay, like, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. Very, very young. When I was just listening to like madness. I see madness and going, I like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What the fuck is this shit? Like a bloke on a motorbike with a, coming out the ground with like bats and stuff around. It scared the shit out of me. Yeah, yeah. So I didn't want to. I was like, don't put it on. I don't want to listen to it. And I think that's why I didn't listen to it for years and years and years and years. And um, I mean, you mentioned we should sort of quickly mention, I guess, the Jim Steinman split in the aftermath of that like you say they seem like quite different people and jim steinman wanted his name to be more prominent on the album cover which i think has been well documented over the years i don't want to oversimplify it but i do think that jim steinman um wanted to be the star somewhat um and Mm. and was maybe a little bit upset that he you know without meatloaf I think he probably felt, oh, you wouldn't be anything without me kind of thing, sort of sort of thing, yeah. But like you say, it feels like they kind of needed each other yeah. because once they did get back together and, you know, like you say, at the height of grunge, sold a whole bunch of records again. We have spoken about this before. I think Bat Hell 2 is quite a considerable step down in terms of quality from Bat Out of Hell. It's got its moments, uh, though. But it's got its moments. It's got its moments. I mean, it's got one huge moment on it obviously which you know as, as i said if you listen back to our podcast i was like man i used to hate i do everything anything for love but i won't do that and now i love it it's great it's fucking great it's so fucking great yeah so um yeah man and uh, you know meatloaf passing away is one of the most instantly recognizable people to have ever made music exiting this mortal coil and in terms of why this record is important, why it's a classic, I think for me, like, you know, like I say, I listen to this record, I think this is good because maybe I haven't listened to it for so long or it took me so long for me to listen to it. I maybe don't feel as strongly about it as some people do. We'll get onto somebody who does in a, in a minute. But anyone who dares to go so unapologetically against the zeitgeist is someone who definitely deserves your respect. Mm. And the record's massive. It's just absolutely massive. You can see why critics were kind of snide about it it came out at absolutely the wrong time and was aimed at people who were becoming more and more marginalized with every passing second essentially but it's an exceptional piece of work and it's an exceptional achievement to have done what they did with it you know to make a record with that much depth and bravado it's hard not to be swept up in the joy of about how i think Mm. but i'm gonna leave the last words on this to someone who has actually been massively influenced by the art of meatloaf i contacted will from creeper and uh asked him if he had anything that he'd like to say about this particular record yeah before you go into this massive thank you to will for sending this yes yeah. this is great 
yeah thank you will thanks mate we much appreciate your contribution as ever will said this jim steinman once described his music as an exorcism that you can dance to i always love that bat of hell in particular is such an unlikely album meet and jim went from a record company to record company trying to sell them on the idea they didn't believe a demo tape could capture the sound of their song so jim sat at a piano pounding the keys till he literally bled from his fingers and meatloaf the antithesis of the 70s disco star screamed the songs at disgruntled label heads if it weren't for todd rundgren the only one who got it enough to produce it it would never even exist and today it ranks as one of the top five best-selling records of all time i've always loved the story of the album how uncompromising it was in its vision how its singer represented the opposite of everything the industry demanded in spite of a world unready and unwilling to understand it it succeeded without having to compromise in many ways i think acts of today could do with taking notice of the story of these men and their album visions are worth fighting for oh man it's beautiful yeah really beautifully summed up thank you will perfectly summed up so I hope we have done some sort of justice to this album. I hope we've done some sort of justice to the legacy of Meatloaf. You know, obviously we haven't spoken about Fight Club and the stuff he did with Tenacious D and the fact that he's become this massively iconic figure over the years. And when you read all of the tributes that have gone out to him over the last week or so, not only do people seem to be talking about how much they endured his music, but... How much of a lovely man he appeared to be as he well. He was, yeah, yeah. We really have just scratched the surface, and we knew we weren't. You know, we knew we weren't gonna. There's too much to go into, but I think even as a character and as a human being, Meatloaf appeared to be just a brilliant, gentle soul. And I think he, even even if you despise his music, and frankly, considering how absolutely bombastic and insane it is, that is a perfectly acceptable opinion to have on it. I think the fact that it cannot be uh, ignored or denied is a, is a huge, huge thing. And his life is fascinating. It's really, really fascinating in terms of outsider art. You know, we've been talking a lot about what is alternative and what isn't, even though bat out of hell is what the third biggest selling record of all time it's the biggest selling debut album of all time mm. it is alternate art in a way because it's certainly outsider art it, it is about an outsider it's about someone who is completely alien and completely odd and i think from that perspective and that perspective alone meatloaf is incredibly alternative even though he uh even though he had a hu- a, a big effect on a huge number of people. And so, yeah, I'm really pleased that we got to do this. It's such a shame that we had to... It's, it's a shame that we didn't think to do it before he passed away. But, but you know, we're doing it now. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. so there you go. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Go over to our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash right podcast if you'd like to sign up for more exclusive content um in the sort of vein of this i would say you know this isn't yeah, really a classic album yeah. it's kind of like a truncated version of a classic album I, I i guess and uh we will see you next week don't know what we're doing next week something fun i'm sure but uh yeah there you go thanks very much for listening we appreciate it